Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Let me ask you a question. Uh, how do you, what do you think would happen if I were to bring out a bottle of wine, um, chilled, and then I were to uh, you know, take the foil off and uncork it, and then pour it into a couple glasses and invite you to come up and drink it on the stage? What do you think would happen? <laughs> Why are y'all so nervous? <laughs> I, uh, I said that during the eight. I said, what would, you, what would you do if I brought a bottle of wine out here? And somebody over here yelled, get a glass. <laughs> um, I'm not going to do that. Uh, gave, I gave thought to it. I really did. But I think that some of you would drop dead. Uh, some of you would be outraged. And some of you would be just tickled that you get to watch the entire thing. Um, Like I said, I kind of, I thought about it. I was really thinking about doing it, but it's against Baptist tradition. It's not a sin to have uh, wine in the church building. It's not a sin to pour some wine into some glasses. It's not even a sin to drink wine. However, for a long time, Baptists have, at least publicly, kept our distance from, (laughs) from alcohol. So it wouldn't really go over well, and I decided against it because I just don't want the headaches right now. Uh, I, do, I should be responsible enough to tell you that the scriptures are extremely clear against drunkenness and that is never allowed. It's a, it's a dumb thing that our culture celebrates and it ought not be celebrated. Um, but when it comes to alcohol or the consumption of alcohol, it is not against it. But in this passage in particular, God tells Jeremiah to do exactly what it is that I sort of asked you about, is to get some wine, to invite some people into the temple, and then tell them to drink it. And the reaction from those people is very similar to the reactions for some of our people. They refused to do it. I do think it's interesting that some of us would lose our minds if it was that I do exactly what it is that God told Jeremiah to do, something worth thinking about. But why did he tell him to do that? Why did God tell Jeremiah to bring wine, bring some people in and tell them to drink the wine. The point that he was getting at, the point that he was driving towards was to celebrate commitment or faithfulness, integrity, to celebrate being committed to the right things and building family around those things. That's what God is going to illustrate this morning and that's what we're gonna look at when we look at Jeremiah chapter 35. But before we do, let's pray together. And then we'll unpack the text. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for those who are watching online, those who are in the room. I pray that you would challenge our hearts, especially when it is that we challenge our own convictions. We know that it's very hard, very difficult to challenge our own convictions. So I pray that where our convictions, our our standards, our way does not line up with your standards, your way, your convictions, God, I pray that we would change and that you would give us the faith to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. 
So in Jeremiah chapter 35, there's a couple of things that you need to know before we unpack the text, before we look at it exegetically. The first one is that Jeremiah 35 is out of order. It's out of timeline order. Jeremiah was compiled not in sequential order, but in thematic order. Meaning that not only, you can't just chart it out on a timeline, that the, the scribe that put together these events in Jeremiah's life and Jeremiah put them together according to themes. So what happens in Jeremiah chapter 35 happens before the exile. And that's important because a couple of sermons ago, I talked about the letter that Jeremiah sent to the exiles. And in that letter, he talked about build a house, plant vineyards, live the life and, and uh, you know, pray for the good of the city and do well in that city. So some of the stuff that we're gonna talk about here in Jeremiah 35 sounds contradictory. And if it was timeline order, it would be, but it, it's not. This happens before Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem and exiles some of the people. So there's nothing contradictory in 35 and the previous chapters. Secondly, this chapter features a family that you have likely never heard of. It's the house of Rechav. Um, this morning, David and I were talking about, because he's preaching in Greenbrier right now, and he says, how are you going to say these words, right? And we were kind of getting on, and I was like, well, it's Rekav is the family, the Rekavites, and Yonadav. That is the, that's how you say those two words. I said, I looked it up in our Bible study software. It tells us how to pronounce words. I said, I looked it up. Why? why how are you going to say it? And remember, he's from Oklahoma. And he said, well, I was going to say Rekav and Jonah, Jonadab, you know, and so that's, that's the okie way to say it, and, and it's okie with me if you want to say it that way, but that's not the way that I'm going to say it. I'm trying to say it the right way. Another thing to keep in mind is that it's, they're Gentiles. They're not, they're not Jews, although they are mentioned with the Jewish ancestors around the time of Moses. And then Hionadav is mentioned in 2 Kings. And we're going we're to unpack that in just a bit. Another thing that's important to keep in mind, if I don't say this in a minute, is that the time distance between Hionadav and Jeremiah is about 200 years, two centuries. So that's important to keep in mind when we're talking about these convictions that they had and how long they had been faithful to those convictions. All right, so you should be at Jeremiah chapter 35. Typically what I'll do is, is we'll cover a large section of the Bible, but like, uh, let's say 10, 12 verses, but I'll try to zoom in on one verse so that we can really unpack that and apply it and learn it better. For this chapter, it's just better if we walk through the chapter, okay? It's just, it's a, it's a holistic story. So if you have a Bible there in front of you, open it up to 35. We're going to read just like one verse, skip down a few, read a couple of verses there. If you do not have a Bible, uh, hear me on this. After the service, I have plenty of Bibles. The same text that I use, the Christian Standard Bible, I'd love to give that to you. And uh, that's free. It's a nice, it's a nice Bible. So I want to give that to you if you don't have one. And that's totally cool. Like you shouldn't feel shame or anything like that. I'd love to give that to you. Okay. So Jeremiah 35, one and two says this, this is the word that came from Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Hiokim, a son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of Rechavites, speak to them and bring them to the one one of the chambers in the temple of the Lord and to offer them a drink of wine. So drink a glass of wine. That's what God tells Jeremiah to tell these people. It's an odd thing for God to say, but you have to remember that God is not a Baptist. At this point, what God is doing is illustrating something. 
He's making an illustration. And that's wildly important. What we're doing is we're building a foundation for what the application or the implication of the text is going to teach us. God is building an illustration. It's a visual for us to understand what he's wanting to get across. So we need to be disciplined enough not to go in two, um, two wrong directions. The first one is to put too much weight on their convictions. The Rehavites had this conviction against alcohol. And so we don't want to put conviction. You don't want to like point to that verse and say, see, the Bible teaches against alcohol. That's not what this text is teaching. Furthermore, you couldn't do that consistently anyways because they had three convictions that are mentioned in this text. One is against the uh, consumption of alcohol. The other one is against living in houses. And the other one is against planting seeds. So if you want to make one of those your life verse, all right, you got to make all three of them your life verse is what I'm saying. So that's not, that's not even the point of the text. That's not what God is doing there. So don't do that. The other thing is not to put, not to assume, because what you would have to do is you say, okay, see, this is, these people were against alcohol. We should be against alcohol. That thing. Then you have to assume that God is telling the prophet to tell the people to break the law, to sin. And God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Jer- James chapter one, verse 13 says it very plainly, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. All right, so God is not asking them to break one of his own laws. That's not what he's doing. Nor is their conviction the point of the text. I'll go ahead and give you the the answer. It's not their conviction, it's that they're convicted. It's that they're faithful. It's that they have character and integrity. That's, the, that's what we're zeroing in on. The rest of this is the environment in which we learn that. It's the illustration. It's the picture in which we're going to learn that. All right, so let's le- read down at verse 5. God told Jeremiah to do that. So, verse 5, I set jars filled with wine and some cups before the sons of the house of Rechavites and said to them, drink wine. Jeremiah does what God told him to do. The only thing that I want to mention here is that it does happen in the temple. So there's a very religious overtone to what's going on with this. They brought them to the temple mount in the temple, set up this idea, this illustration. So there's very much a religious sort of faithfulness, commitment idea just in the setting. Furthermore, there would have been witnesses. And these witnesses would have been religious leaders, okay? So you see the picture that's going on. We're going to pick up a piece, a little piece, each time that we go. And what's happening right now is that God is setting up an illustration that has very strong religious overtones, commitments, and witnesses with religious positions of authority. Now, 6 through 10, or 6 through 11, is the next section. And this is where the rubber meets the road, all right? Verse 6, but they replied, we do not drink wine. For Hionadab, son of our ancestor Rechav, commanded you and your descendants must never drink wine. You must not build a house or sow seed or plant a vineyard. Those things are not for you. Rather, you must live in tents your whole life so you may live a long time on the soil where you stay as resident aliens. Verse 8. We have obeyed Hionadab, son of our ancestor Rechav. I really wish they wouldn't say it back to back every single time. In all that he commanded us. So we haven't drunk wine our whole life. We, 
This is important. Pay attention to this. They said, we haven't drunk wine our whole life. We, our wives, our sons, our daughters, everybody, everybody in this community, we don't do that. Verse nine, we have also not built houses to live in and do not have vineyards, fields, or seeds. Verse 10, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done everything our ancestor Jonadav commanded us. Jeremiah goes through with what God told him to do, but the, the rub, the, the, the challenge is that they refuse to drink the wine. The reason and what it accompanies is important for us to spend some time on. They don't only have the conviction against drinking wine, but they also have a conviction against living in a house or planting uh, z- uh, like horticulture, planting seeds and, and growing their own things. In other words, they were living a lifestyle that we would call nomadic shepherds. They move around and they raise sheep. That's the li- sheep's sheep. They raise sheep. That's the lifestyle that they are living. It's in a manner of speaking, what you could understand this is, is they're, 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 they're old school. They're, they're kind of like the way that we would think of Amish, right? They lived this life. They were associated with the ancestors of the Jews back around Moses. And you remember before they moved into the promised land, Canaan, Israel, that territory, the Jews were nomadic shepherds. They traveled around raising sheep. So this group, this family, and it's more than just a family, it's a tribe. This whole big uh, extended family was living old school. They were living this way, which is very countercultural and sacrificial. It's a lot easier to live in cities with walls and houses. They weren't doing that. They were living a different sort of life. The point is that this lifestyle and this commitment rooted back to their great-grandfather, Hyonadav. They call him his, their ancestor. That's what they point back to. But who is Hyonadav? If you look in 2 Kings, in 2 Kings, he is mentioned, and it's just a very brief mentioning. He joined in this cleansing of the, of the community. The community, the people were worshiping Baal. It's a false god, it's an idol. And the, it had become very popular to worship Baal. Well, a guy named Omri, O-M-R-I, and others, particularly in this context, Hyonadav, joined it and they slaughtered all of these Baal worshipers. Like it was this big, bloody uprising. And he is mentioned in 2 Kings as being a part of that uprising. He's not only what we would call like uh, that, that he, it's the idea of like this zealous Yahweh worshiper, this outside group that took things extremist. They are Yahweh worshipers, they're not Jews, they're Yahweh worshipers, but they take the faith to the extreme. Because of that mention in 2 Kings, biblical scholars have theories on why it is that he went back to his family and said, all right, everybody, listen, can't drink wine. You're, we're not living in houses. We're not going to plant anything. Probably the theory is because he associated those things with Baal worship. That happens in our lives. When, you, when you're against something that's bad, you sometimes associate all the other things with those. This has happened in our country, in American history, in American religious history a fight against um, the effects of alcohol, particularly in saloons with prostitution and you know, cowboys losing all their money to gambling and that sort of stuff led to 
largely in our country, this anti-alcohol type of thing with Baptists. But it's also why, have you ever met anybody that's against playing cards or billards, like pool, that sort of stuff? Because what happened was in that movement, in that temperance movement, all of it got associated with something being bad. When really cards are neutral, all right? It's just, it's just playing cards. Um, in fact, for a time, piano music was something that people pushed against because, you know, when you watch the Western and the music stops and somebody gets shot. So, you know, like <laughs> pianos mean you're going to die, right? So, so they just kind of associated all that stuff. That's probably what Hyonadav did. He saw the Baal worship and he said, those people live in houses, right? And think about Jewish history. They were traveling and as they settled the land where they were supposed to be running the other people out and they weren't, as they settled, they became more like their neighbors. Hyonadav looks at that and says, if you live in a house, you're gonna be a Baal worshiper. If you plant vineyards, you're gonna be a Baal worshiper. If you, if you drink, you're gonna be a Baal worshiper. So there's this association. So that's probably what's going on with Hyonadav. It kind of makes sense. It looks logical. It looks kind of the way that we live our lives. But here's the important thing. And this is why we really need to stop and think slowly as we read the text. Not one time do the Rechavites point back and say, we're not drinking that because God told us not to. There's no text in Deuteronomy or Numbers or Chronicles or Deuteronomicals. There's nothing that they point back to. There's no real book called Deuteronomicals, y'all. They, they, don't, they don't point back to this. This isn't the command of God. This is the command of grandpa. So this is what I'm calling grandpa's church. They took more or very seriously grandpa's church as opposed to not in conflict. Hear me. There's also no part of this text where God is ridiculing them or acting like their conviction is bad, but he's also not acting like it's good. It's an extra thing that they're doing. It's just an extra thing that they're doing. So they have Grandpa's church in, in association or in conjunction with God's law. It's important that we see what's going on in the text and not try to read too much into it. All right? So that's what's happening. Now, let's look at verse 14. This is what God says in response to that. This is God himself. The words of Hyonadav, son of Rechab, have been carried out. He commanded his descendants not to drink wine, and they have not drunk wine to this day because they have obeyed their ancestors' commands. But I have spoken to you time and time again, and you have not obeyed me. You have not listened and you, not, you have not obeyed me. So you see the illustration that God is painting here. He purposefully told Jeremiah, go find the zealots, go find the extremists, bring them here and tell them to break one of the commands that their grandpa told them to do, knowing they would not do it. And God says, you see that? They are super committed to grandpa's church and I'm over here telling you time and time and time and time again what you should do and how you should live and you won't listen to me. They listen to grandpa. Why won't you listen to God? That's the, the contrast that God is trying to bring up with Jeremiah. That's the contrast that he's trying to paint out there. Their commitment to things outside of God's command. 
The point is that they are terribly, sacrificially committed to the instructions of grandpa, but the people of Israel are not committed to the clear instructions of God. You see where this is going? Y'all see how this might apply to churches and to us and that sort of stuff? I got real nervous as I was writing the sermon. At this point, I thought, I'll just stop here and just lay it out there, lead a horse to water and see if you drink it, you know, and just so I don't have to get in trouble later. But nevertheless, verse 18 through 19. But, this is God again. But the house of the Rechavites, Jeremiah said, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, because you have obeyed the command of your ancestor, Kionadav, and have kept all his commands and have done everything he commanded you, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Hionadav, son of Rehav, will never fail to have a man to stand before me always. God blesses faithfulness as a quality. It's not the object of their faithfulness that's the point of this story. It's that they are faithful, that they are committed, that they have integrity, and that they have character. It's not the particular commitment. That's a neutral thing to be committed to. He says that they will never have, they will never not be a time when one person from this family is standing before God. It's, it's a hopeful message. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has already surrounded the city. These people who are nomadic shepherds are now living in the walls of Jerusalem because when you live in a tent, you're not much good against the forces of Babylon. All right, so there is this uneasiness. There's this fear. There's this pain that's going on in their lives. There's this tension, this unsurety about the future. And God says, listen, at the very least, you are a faithful, committed people of integrity. You say what you mean and you mean what you say and you do that. And that I will honor. You won't be wiped out. You won't be annihilated by Nebuchadnezzar. They're still gonna, Nebuchadnezzar's still gonna do what he's doing but I'm going to bless character and integrity. It's a powerful illustration. While it's thousands of years old, it's just as alive and meaningful for you and me today. God desires faithfulness to the right things from his people as his people, as a family of God. This is what God desires in our lives, that we would have commitment and integrity and faithfulness, but to the right things. And all of this begins with a commitment to God. Look at verse 15. This is powerful. Verse 15 says, time and time again, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, proclaiming this message. What has God told the children of Israel time and time again? Turn each one of you from his evil ways and correct your actions. Stop following other gods to serve them. Live in the land that I gave you and your ancestors, but you did not pay attention or obey me. The same message that God had repeatedly told the children of Israel, the Israelites, is the same message that God has repeatedly told us. Repent, turn back, turn toward Jesus. Stop putting your faith and your trust in idols that you can construct and put your faith and trust in the one true God. Stop putting your faith and trust in your own morality, in your own commitments, in your own keeping of rules that aren't God's rules and thinking that God's going to be pleased with that. Stop doing that and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Repent and turn back. It's the same message thousands of years ago. It's the same message in the New Testament and it's the same message today. The question, the only question is, 
Are you going to repent and believe and trust the one true God? Or are you going to think following grandpa's church rules are what's going to get you in? Or what's going to make you right? Because it doesn't work that way. So if you do follow Jesus, then let me ask you this. Let's learn from these people and this circumstance. There are two lessons, two strong lessons that I see from this text that we could apply today. And the first one is this. God's law is more important than man's traditions. God's law is more important than man's traditions. Some of us in the American church are more committed to the way that grandpa did church than we are to the commands of Christ. Hear me, I'm not saying that grandpa's church, what I'm calling traditionalism or that sort of stuff, I'm not saying that any of that is necessarily wrong. I am there with you. I have all sorts of commitments that aren't necessarily in the Bible, things that I do, practices that I keep, traditions that I love and that I cherish. The question is not whether or not you have these, what we call extra biblical, not anti-biblical, but extra biblical ways about your religion and your faith. And that's, that's not bad. The question is, are you more committed to those than you are to the teachings of Christ? That's what he's trying to bring up here to the front. And sadly, I find so much evidence that we often aren't. Like there are people in our churches that will get angry, mad, if we don't sing traditional hymns in a certain manner of time. Like if we don't do one, at least one every week, then they're gonna be upset or one every two weeks and they're gonna be mad about it. And they never lose a moment of sleep knowing that they have never shared the gospel with another person. God told you to do one. He didn't say anything about the other one. And it's not just traditionalism. There are people and typically younger people who don't wanna go to like stuffy churches, don't wanna go to a church that has Baptist on the outside of it or, or make some sort of denominational um, conviction or stands on traditional Christian values. They have that conviction. I'm not gonna do that. I wanna be all about mercy. I wanna be all about grace and never even bother to honor God with their finances and the way that they manage their time and the way that they manage the resources that God has given you. He commanded this one. He doesn't really care about the vibe of your church. That's not something that he said. So we gotta be very careful. Not, hear me, I'm not preaching that you don't have extra parts of your faith. We all do that. And that's fine, it's just part of the human condition. I'm just saying that make sure that the extra aren't the primary and that the primary is the primary. That's what we have to do. Jesus himself addressed this issue in Matthew 23, 23 through 24. He says, what do you scribes and Pharisees? hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet you gulp down a camel. The people that Jesus was talking to were extremely committed to the tithe. Could you imagine you go to Serrano's or something this afternoon and you get your chips and your salsa and you, and you pull out 10 chips and you throw one on the ground and say, that one was for God. And then you eat your other nine. Like you're gonna tithe your tortilla chips. That's the way that they live their lives. 
They would tithe their tortilla uh, chips and then treat the waiter like they were less than human. God says, that's, Jesus says, that's hypocritical. Don't do that. Don't keep traditions over the law. Don't keep your preferences over his instructions. Love one another, mercy, kindness, faithfulness, and forgiveness. So the first thing that we need to keep in mind is that God's way is more important than our ways. And the second thing is that faithfulness is a family trait. You can learn this in community. And there's really two applications to this. First one is just the way that we raise children, the way that we live our lives. Train up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now that's a proverb, which means it's very likely that they will not depart from it. We need to remember that there is power in community. There is power in the way that we raise our children, the way that we lead our families. You can see this in all sorts of aspects of our lives, right? Think about how in some parts of this country, hockey is the most popular sport. Can you imagine that? It's true. I've read about it. There are areas in which hockey is the most popular. And kids grow up wanting to play hockey. They go, there are other parts of our country where basketball is all there is. That's what it is. That's what kids want to do. Our part of the country, it's football. Nowhere is it baseball because it's boring. But everywhere, that's, there are these convictions. And that's largely, it's honestly, when you think about it, that's largely a community thing. Kids grow up in a certain community, and so they pick up certain disciplines. What if we leveraged that very same reality towards raising our children in the way that we value? In the way that, that means that we surround them with, uh, with other children that are involved in church. That means that you make Christianity and your faith an actual priority. That means as long as you live in this house, we go to weekly worship services. That's why you, you get grown, you can go wherever you want to, but right now, you're going to church. We're all going to church. We're on vacation. We go to church. And I know some, I, I mean, I feel like just like the old dude whenever I say that, but that's reality. Why? Because it's a commitment, whether I'm in Conway or LA, it's just a commitment. That's what we do. You are much more likely for your kids to still value the church if you're committed to it, if you're committed to it personally. Your children need to see you reading the Bible and praying. You need to talk to your children about why it is that you tithe and serve. Sometimes, like, I mean, my kids, they're not in here right now, so I'll talk bad about them. But sometimes, you know, wonder, I don't want to go to the thing. I don't want to go to church. Why do we got to go do this thing? You know, we're always up there, Dad. And I'm like, look, because it matters. It matters to me. It matters to other people. It's worship. So you're going to smile and do it. And I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. That's what I normally do. Uh, So we make it a commitment. That's what we do. And like, listen, I'm telling you, my wife is really good about this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard her talking to one of the kids and say, ask them what church they go to. It's like one of my kids is texting and she's over there. What church do they go to? Tell them they can come to our, tell them I'll come pick them up. We're going to come pick them up. Do I need to talk to their mom? Get their mom's number. She's coming too. You know, that sort of thing. Make it, it's not, it's just who we are. It's a part of our commitment. 
But that same power is not just, hear me on this, it's not just in the way that we raise our children. It's the way that we let the community disciple us. There is strength in a community of believers. That's why you need to be in a small group. Think about it this way. If you have this this, um, goal of getting in shape and toning up and losing some weight and stuff like that, it's really hard to do that if everybody you know eats junk and doesn't do anything, right? It's so hard, but it's way easier if everybody you know is like counting calories and they're like, oh, it's lunchtime. Let's all go for a walk around the office. You know, that's, that's easier. You just get into the community and do that sort of stuff. You ought to do the same thing in your faith walk. Build a community around the things that you value. And it it sounds so fundamentalist, but it's true. So find friends in church, bring more friends to church, celebrate, talk about the things of God outside of the church, find entertainment and music and books and conversations, date people who go to church. If you do these things, if you build this sort of community around yourselves, I'm thinking about this verse where they said, it's not just us, for 200 years, not us, our wives, our sons, our daughters. We don't drink wine because grandpa said not to. There were no one alive at that time had ever met grandpa, but they were committed because they built a community around the things that mattered to them. I gotta be honest, I'm a sucker for regional maps of the United States that highlight the differences. I like them, like the benign things. I like them because for some reason I feel unified and I like to know kind of how different parts of the country do different things. Like, like what's the most popular truck here or there? What's the most popular house paint color in this part of the country or that part of the country? I like to see these things. I don't know why. Uh, I got one to show you. Look at this one. Y'all know what this map is highlighting? Does anybody have an idea? This is the most popular ice cream restaurants by county, all right? It's important stuff. Over there on the West Coast, uh, that's Baskin Robbins, that dark color there. Up there at the top, the magenta, that color up there is uh, Culver's. Over here on the East Coast, you got Rita's and Sweet Frog. Never even heard of Sweet Frog. But, um, But those gold counties there, they're committed, like a little island right there. Anybody wanna guess what the pink is? That's Dairy Queen. That's Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen owns this country, all right? That's Dairy Queen. The gray means that there's not enough data, which cracks me up because look at Alaska. They're like, those fools ain't eating ice cream. They're like, why would we eat ice cream? We don't want any ice cream, right? Okay, so there's no ice cream there. But there in the middle of the country, the green, what is that? It's Brahms, that's right, God's favorite ice cream store. Um, The other thing about that, this map here, is that you see the very bottom green box there. Y'all see that? That's where I'm from. That's literally my county. That's where I grew up at that bottom green box right there. And the thing about it is um, I love Brahms. I grew up eating Brahms. I didn't know everybody didn't have a Brahms. I just thought everybody had a Brahms. Also, those of you who keep saying that theory that Brahms can only go so far from some magic place in Oklahoma, um, my county's way further than our county right now. So um, that's a myth. So anyways, my point is, 
Every Wednesday night after youth group, my youth group, all of us went to Brahms. Every single Wednesday night. I would order a small vanilla shake and a small fry. And I would dip my fries in my vanilla shake and eat it. And it's delicious. You should try it. So that's what I would do. There were times as a teenager that I would, I went to Wednesday night church because of Jesus. He told me to go. That was my faith community. I'm going to Wednesday night church because of Jesus. But there were also times I went to Wednesday night church because of Brahms. That's where my friends were going. That's what it was. There was, at some point, the community got baked in to my faith. They were almost one and the same. And it strengthened my faith when that's just what all of us did. We all went to church and then we all went to Brahms. There is this amazing strength in building community around the things that matter finding the things that God has given us and then build a community around that. Find the faithful things and then build family around it. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.